Hello, this is Sarah Ann Minkin from the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Welcome to another edition of our podcast, Occupied Thoughts. Today, it is my honor to be hosting Nuran Alhamdan. Nuran is currently a graduate research fellow for the program on Palestine and Palestinian-Israeli affairs at the Middle East Institute. She's a, she is a Truman Scholar representing her home state of New Hampshire and an MA candidate in Arab studies in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Nuran, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. You recently published a column in the Washington Post about your experience in the diaspora as a Palestinian. And last week, you also co-hosted an extraordinary event commemorating the Nakba and talking about its relevance for today. So we're really excited. We at FMEP, the whole FMEP team is really excited to talk to you to ask you about what's happening right now with Palestinians in Gaza, Jerusalem, West Bank, inside of 48 Israel, and of course, in the diaspora and specifically in the US. Can we start there? Can you tell us about what's happening right now with Palestinians in the US? With the, there have been protests over the last week, the last few days especially. What do you make of this moment? Well, I think to start, what Palestinians in the diaspora are doing is they're decolonizing the narrative. Palestinians in Palestine right now, be it in Jerusalem or in Haifa or, or people in Gaza, they're, they're physically decolonizing, right? They're fighting back in their own ways against the Israeli occupation. And I know folks will hear what I say and interpret that to mean they're, they're fighting back violently. Sure, some folks possibly are, but for the most part, Palestinians are really just fighting back Israeli state power. When the Al-Qurd siblings are facing Israeli police and settlers every day, that's decolonization. When Palestinians in Haifa and in Lid and in Ramle are going out and, and speaking in Arabic and protesting and waving Palestinian flags, that's decolonization. The fact that also Palestinian refugees in Arab countries like in Jordan, in Jordan, we saw people literally marching to the border Borders. And I think people need to understand the symbolism that these are people whose grandparents walked in the opposite direction to seek safety in Jordan in 1948 and in 1967, which is actually the story of my family. And for them to be walking back towards Palestine, demanding that the borders be opened, it shows that the entire Palestinian people right now, wherever they are in the world, are really calling for a huge change and are calling to be recognized as one unified people. And Palestinians in America are no exception to this. Granted in the United States, obviously our tactics are a little different. So we have Palestinians in the diaspora who have been committed organizers really for decades. They've actually been doing this work for a really long time, but the fruits of that labor uh, are kind of paying off. I mean, the fact that Protests in LA and San Francisco were bringing out tens of thousands of people, protests in New York. Even here in my hometown of Portsmouth, we had a protest that brought out 50 people, which for a small state like New Hampshire, which has basically no background in anything related to foreign policy, that's a very big deal. Um, Palestinians are also decolonizing in America by taking up space on airwaves. The fact that uh, mainstream news channels can't ignore us anymore. The fact that they're, they're inviting Palestinians who live in Palestine and Palestinian Americans, it speaks to the fact that we aren't going to be silenced. And even Palestinians who are living, again, in small towns all over the US, they're picking up 
their laptop, I was going to say pen for the sake of symbolism, but let's be realistic. They're, they're taking to their keyboard and they're tweeting, they're writing to their local newspapers, they're writing to senators, they're organizing people in their communities who have no background in, in terms of what's happening in Palestine. So I think things in terms of the diaspora are really looking hopeful. We're, we're really answering the call that Muhammad al-Kurd put out to Palestinians who live abroad, and not just him, all of our people in Palestine have been asking us to take up this work. I'm very proud of us. I think most of us have been doing that, and it's going to, the momentum is going to continue, even when things die down in terms of uh, the tension back home. I think things will never go back to the way they were. Palestinians are going to continue demanding that the American mainstream, whether it's the media or our politicians, stay up to date in terms of matching the people in this country who want to see real justice in Palestine. Thank you, Naran. Well, tell us, you, you said things won't go back. And what we're, one of the things that we're seeing here in the U.S. is what looks like a real and dramatic shift in the Democratic Party. Will you tell us? your impressions and your understanding of what's happening there? Yeah, I think in terms of things aren't going to go back to the way they are, again, in terms of just mainstream culture in America, things are never going to go back to the way they were. For decades, the pro-Israel lobby in this country had a chokehold on the American public. That's the truth. You couldn't even say that you felt bad for Palestinians. Remember back in the day when John Stewart made one segment on the Gaza Strip that was by today's terms, extremely vanilla. This man did not say anything that radical. He just made the simple statement that he felt bad for Palestinians and he, he dared to humanize them. And he was attacked for it. And how many other politicians, um, whether it was Keith Ellison or even Justin Amash, who's just of Palestinian background, so he felt compelled to vote neutral on anything that came his way, those days are long gone. I think we're seeing a huge surge in terms of Palestine entering the American mainstream. You have celebrities and, and not just the Palestinian celebrities. Like it's amazing that Bella Hadid is out here protesting with people in New York and her Instagram feed has essentially just become a Palestine education center. But I'm talking about celebrities who you would have never thought in a million years, Halsey, Michael B. Jordan, Dua Lipa, um, India more like folks are really coming out. I think I even just saw something that said that Zendaya shared something that those people have millions of followers. And so the average American right now is scrolling through Twitter, or Instagram or Facebook, and they're seeing their favorite singer or performer post about Palestinians and, and post very compelling things, things like you can't be intersectional without Palestinian liberation. So in that sense, things are also never going to be the same. But in the political sense, in terms of the Democratic Party, we're definitely never going to go back to Israel being a bipartisan issue that both Republicans and Democrats just sign a blank check for. That's not going to happen. Of course, the squad has always been a little bit ahead of the game. And this weekend we saw AOC um, and a ton of others tweeting that, you know, apartheid countries are not democratic. That was their little subtweet at Israel. Um, but it's not just them. A lot of democratic policymakers, lawmakers have been joining them. Uh, so I, even though this is to like, I, I put a very heavy asterisk next to all of this. And I say that even though they're speaking about it, it doesn't mean that they've fully shifted. They've just started talking about it. And the reason they've just started talking about it is because their base 
their constituencies don't support the pro-Israel stance that the Democratic Party has had. People want change. People, even constituents of AOC and supporters of AOC, they want to see her go further. They, okay, you recognize that Israel is an apartheid state. So what's the next move, AOC? Are we going to be endorsing BDS? Are we going to be calling for halting all aid to Israel? Those are the questions that people are asking right now. And I think the, just the unspoken like reality for all democratic lawmakers right now is that their base is going to continue pushing them. The wave is not going to stop now. If it, you know, if people, if any of these like Congress, uh, Congress women or men or senators want to remain in the pro-Israel crowd, their fate is going to be the fate of Andrew Yang, who literally dropped how many points after making a pro-Israel statement. People are going to be primaried and voted out because this is an issue that matters to people. So my hope is that the base, the Democratic Party base, is going to continue pushing people. And Joe Biden, our president, I mean, who else are we going to ask to push him except for these policymakers and lawmakers? So I hope that they continue to shift, they continue listening to Palestinians, but ultimately, you know, it's in the hands of the president, whether it's stopping the violence of Israel right now, whether it's stopping the, the blank checks and the arms, it's all on the president right now. So we, we kind of are relying on these democratic lawmakers to, to keep pushing him, whether in private or in public. Thanks for bringing up the president and, and these questions of, of, of uh, American political leadership. Let's talk about Palestinian leadership, whether in, in, in the diaspora or, or wherever it is. What, what do you make, what do you think these recent events mean for Palestinian leadership in the different places where it exists? Well, I'm sure that most people listening and watching already know this, but I'll go ahead and say that today there was a general strike of dignity announced in Palestine. So you have hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who are out in the streets protesting across historic Palestine. All of their businesses are closed. You know, they refuse to uh, open in any way. There's also a kind of like a almost like the first intifada in terms of bringing up this idea of boycotting Israeli products again. And I think that's very significant because people who live in Palestine, they're not like us in America where they have a choice, right? They don't have every product under the sun to choose from where they can easily not choose to buy an Israeli product. So I think the fact that people back home are insisting on bringing back al-muqata'a in full force, they were, most people were actually already adhering to it, but the fact that it's really become a national discussion again, people are just showing even like Israeli milk products they don't want to buy anymore. Those are on protest, uh, pro, protest, uh, signs right now in, in Ramallah. So like people are really adhering to this. And I think the general strike is the explanation. It's the answer right now to where is Palestinian leadership. Palestinian leadership is in the streets right now. Palestinian leadership is in Sheikh Jarrah. It's young people who are tweeting in Gaza afraid for their lives. It's people in Haifa who are taking back the streets these are the leaders of Palestine. Have we heard anything from Abu Mazen? And even if we have heard anything, has anyone been listening? No, because people are listening to the streets. They're listening to the people who have actually made this change, this huge monumental global change in, in the past few weeks. 
the change makers, the real leaders of the Palestinians, they're not anyone who we're going to see on TV. They're not anyone who's going to make a diplomatic statement. They're not anyone who Joe Biden is ever going to meet with. They're young people. And they're the ones who forcibly took back the narrative. And I think today really signifies like a nail in the coffin of what was the Palestinian Authority. There is no Palestinian Authority. People don't buy into Oslo. People don't buy into the separation of our people. And even here in the Palestinian diaspora, the leaders or the people who we look up to as leaders in the Palestinian diaspora, they're again, they're the people back home who are, who are fighting this fight. It's not Abu Mazen. It's not anybody really who has any important title before their name. Turns out that these people aren't leaders at all. They've been contracted by the Israeli government to keep Palestinians fractured and keep them disunited. And I think everybody sees that for what it is. Everyone has already seen it for what it is. But today really shows that Palestinians hold the power. It's not the Palestinian Authority, which is why, of course, these statements from the president that are like, we call on both sides and the leadership of both sides to de-escalate. There is no leadership on the Palestinian side, except for the people who you're calling for to go back home and to, and to not resist and to just accept the Israeli occupation silently. Thank you. Thank you for that. What gives you in this moment, since you wrote about this in the Lily, what, what gives you hope? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, I think when I wrote about this, I it was actually before the bombs really started dropping on Gaza. And so the piece actually got published the same day that the first bomb started dropping. And I felt I felt almost in despair. Like I wrote this piece about feeling hopeful, but like right now I don't feel hopeful at all. Um, but I will say that I do feel hopeful again, and I feel very immensely proud of the people in Palestine right now who are really risking their lives, their livelihoods, everything on the line to make their voices heard, not just back home, but to make their voice heard around the world. Um, I'm immensely proud of them. They give me hope. I think the fact that the Kurd siblings, Mohammed and Mona al-Kurd, they're the same age as me. They really, the fact that they were able to make Palestine the focal point of global discussion again, that should give everybody hope. Like, look how powerful Palestinian youth are. And I think even some of the scenes coming out from Gaza, people are losing their families, they're losing their loved ones. The fact that the people who are survivors are coming out and they're still able to say, we want freedom, that should give everyone hope. Because I don't think, I don't, I think the expectation is that a people who are beaten down consistently will eventually give up, but Palestinians really show that that's not true. Um, and so that gives me immense hope. I will say the other thing that gives me extreme hope here in the United States, and I think this is specific to my experience as a Palestinian in the diaspora, is the constant and consistent support that Palestine gets from marginalized communities within America. The fact that like black liberation in America has come to be understood as synonymous with Palestinian liberation. The fact that we have allies in, in Armenians and, and undocumented people and in people fighting against you know, imperial wars, like that should give people a lot of hope. And it really goes to show that like the Palestinian story is one that's not complicated the way that these pro-Israel pundits are making it out to be. It's a very simple story that any 
person with an ounce of understanding of what justice is can read and come to a conclusion that like I see myself in this story. The fact and, and I also want to highlight that Jewish Americans increasingly read the Palestinian story and see themselves in it too. And so the fact that like our spectrum of allies in this country and across the world is so diverse and so full of, of life and full of people who aren't going to stop fighting for our liberation in the same way they aren't going to stop fighting for their own liberation. I think that should inspire hope in, in every single person. Thank you so much, Naran. You, you spoke about your hope. You also talked about not having, not necessarily having hope, maybe even having some, some, uh, some kind of despair. Would, will you say more about that? Yeah, sure. I think I, I, I totally believe in, in revolutionary hope. So that's why I always try to keep the hope. But I think at the same time, the, the scenes that we've been seeing from Gaza are really just, I think heartbreaking is like a vast understatement. You have entire families being wiped out. And I don't mean like one or two members. I mean, the entire family from the individual who's 90 years old to like the person who's six years old. Like that is literally ethnic cleansing. That is genocide, like for a family to just to cease to exist. And it's very tough to also like be reading some of these tweets coming out of Gaza. People like we live in the 21st century. People in Gaza have technology. They're tweeting their goodbyes. They're literally tweeting their goodbyes. And so it's in moments of that, of, of seeing the horror that people have to live through and then to scroll, you know, on like the policymaking side of Twitter or like the politi politics oriented side of it and to see people attempt to justify that. It's in those moments that I sometimes feel despair because while we have made a lot of progress, I think a lot of people still do believe to some level that Palestinians and especially the ones in Gaza are less human and that they're not worthy of sympathy or even an acknowledgement of, of their suffering and the fact that they don't deserve to die um, and that they shouldn't, they shouldn't even be living under the blockade. To give context to folks, by the way, people in Gaza were living in an open air prison during a pandemic before all of this started. That's how little their lives were viewed as worthy by Israel and by the international community. And now on top of it, they're being bombed relentlessly. So in those moments, I, it's very hard to not feel despair and sadness and anger. But and, and I totally respect that. And I also like tell other Palestinians that like give yourself the grace of like feeling sad, of, of feeling angry and enraged, like we deserve that. And like, that's another human emotion, no matter how negatively it's portrayed by like the media that like, those are valid emotions that we should be feeling. Uh, but at the same time, especially as folks who live in the US or elsewhere, like we need to turn those feelings into action. And like, we have to keep doing what we can to fight for the people of Gaza so that this doesn't happen because right now this has just been a cycle, right? Every few years, Israel mows the lawn right, gets rid of those pesky residents and tries to teach them a lesson. Well, we have to make sure that this doesn't happen again in two or three or four years. That's like what should be motivating everyone right now. And so in those moments of despair that I have, that's what I tell myself, like, let's pick up and, and 
get back to work so that we aren't in the same cycle of emotion in a few years. Thank you for that. Speaking of, of, of cycles, um, one way that people are talking about what has been, what has been happening and, but it is especially visible now is to, to talk about what people are calling the ongoing Nakba. Um, will you, what does that, what does that phrase mean to you? And, and if you would, would you, would you tell us a little bit about your family story, how you came to be in, in New Hampshire, your, your, what the Nakba has meant to your family? Yeah. So um, the Nakba, for those who may not know, was commemorated this Saturday. And it, of course, coincided with the Israeli bombardment on Gaza, the, the displacement of Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah and the assault on Palestinians who live in 48 lands. Um, the Nakba began prior to 1948. I know a lot of Zionists like to claim that the Nakba was a one-time event in 1948, and they, of course, victim blame Palestinians for it. They say, you left your own home so that Arab armies could wipe us out, so it's not our problem. But that's really far from the truth. In terms of my family, my grandmother was expelled from Yaffa a few months before May of 1948. So there had yet to be a war. The state of Israel had not yet been declared. Uh, the Haganah, I believe, in the Ergun take responsibility for firebombing uh, Yaffa in this time. And so my grandmother and her mother and her father and all her siblings actually walked on foot from Yaffa to Cairo. Her dad died on the way of a heart attack because they got the news while stopping in a village that Yaffa had been overtaken by Zionist forces. It has had essentially been defeated. And this was a man who was very invested, not just in, in Yaffa as his hometown, but as, as a merchant, as an economic merchant and as a cultural merchant for, for his time. And so he was so heartbroken that he died on the way. And my grandmother and her mother actually had to bury him. They, he is marked somewhere. He's buried in an unmarked grave somewhere right now in Palestine. And my grandmother lived her whole life in Cairo before meeting my grandfather. On my father's side of the family, they lived in a small village called Gzaze. It's in the Ramle district. And it was actually attacked by Zionist forces in July. Well, first it was actually attacked in December 1947. Benny Maurice actually has it documented. Uh, uh, and it's like in some of his books about the Nakbe. It was first attacked December 1947. Uh, there was a grenade thrown into the house of the Mukhtar. Five children were killed. Despite this, people in the village did not want to leave, so they remained. And it was in July of 1948, so that's two months after the May 1948 war, they were visited again by the Haganah, who shot uh, my great uncle. So sorry about that. Um, who shot my great uncle on the night before his wedding in front of the entire village. And it was at that point, of course, of course, July 1948, you can imagine what Palestinians had witnessed, right? The people in the village had heard about Dir Yassin. They had heard about all the folks who had been ethnically cleansed from other villages. And so they had to make the decision to leave at that point. And so they all left. They were actually IDPs seven times in Palestine. Um, this is leading up to 1967, and it's because every place they went was attacked by Zionist forces again. All of this again after May 1948. And then when the 67 war broke out, my father was already born. He was born in Jericho, and him and his parents were subsequently displaced to Jordan. 
And uh, the village today, according to what I know from Zuhrot and, and other organizations that memor uh, memorialize an attempt to find the remains of Palestinian villages, is in a closed military zone. So that means that even if we were to visit, uh, I'm not sure what level of access we would have. To my understanding, we wouldn't have access at all. But the village is apparently still standing, as is the train station that it had. So that's our Nakabe story. Um, my parents ended up in America by complete chance. My mom was displaced here after the Gulf War in Kuwait. And my dad just came here to study uh, from Jordan. And they've been here ever since. Um, I think the Nakbe was very foundational for me as a young adult. Hearing it, I heard the, the first Nakbe story from my grandfather in one of my first visits to Jordan. And a few years later, I actually took my first trip to Palestine with my parents, which we were only granted by virtue of our American citizenship. And it was in that moment coming back as a high schooler and having to explain to my grandparents how Jerusalem looked, how Palestine looked, that I kind of realized that, okay, my family has a story and it transcends just our experience. It's an experience that many, many other Palestinians identify with. And ever since then, I've just really been a nerd, so to speak, doing my due diligence in terms of researching, researching about the Nakba and researching about Palestinian refugees and our former villages. And I'll probably continue doing that work because there's really nothing that gives me fulfillment in this world except for that work. Um, and in terms of the ongoing Nakba, of course it's an ongoing Nakba, of course it is. Like people are being displaced right now. I think the latest statistics from the UN was like over 50,000 people in Gaza have been forced to leave their homes and are seeking refuge in other parts of the Strip. That's the ongoing Nakba. And it's not just Gaza, it's not just Sheikh Jarrah. Like how many Palestinian families were forcibly evicted from their homes in the West Bank? Even Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, those are IDPs, those are internally displaced people. Some of them have and are from villages that are in Israel proper today, and they can't return to them despite the citizenship that they have. So the, the Nakba is really ongoing. And I think Muhammad Al-Kurd said it best on our MEI webinar that he was a very you know, honored and esteemed panelist for. He said that the Nakba is not just ongoing, it's recurring. You can live through multiple Nakbas. His own grandmother was expelled from her home how many times throughout her life? Uh, and I think the question of understanding Palestinian grievances really rests in the Nakba. And that's why American policymakers, Israeli policymakers, even Palestinian, uh, Palestinian policymakers, the folks in the PA, to, to not start at the Nakba when we're discussing solutions for Palestine is really doing a disservice because really 99.9% .9 of Palestinian grievances start at the Nakba. And Israel's policies are all a continuation of the Nakba. All of its systematic oppression of Palestinians is foundationally based on the events of 1948 and the continued effort to keep Palestinians out and to take as much of their land as possible while keeping the least amount of Palestinians on that land. So I, I would tell anyone that the Nakba is not just a personal story. It is. It's the personal story of many Palestinians, but it's also the framework of Israel's current oppression. And to not understand the Nakba, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. And, and frankly, Palestinians have no reason to engage with people anymore who deny the Nakba, past or present.
Thank you for sharing all of that with us and um, for sharing your family and your analysis and um, and your and your framing with everyone. Is there anything else that you want an American audience to know? I think the last thing I would like to say to, to anyone who's watching this is the time is now for any bold decisions that you might have been too afraid to make before. The time is now to endorse BDS and to get on the, the boycott, divestment and sanctions ship. Now is the time to be calling your senators and demanding more of them. It's not just enough that they're making a statement condemning violence on both sides and, and saying that I, you know, I feel bad for Palestinians. That's great, but that's the rhetoric we needed 30 years ago. Right now, what we need of our policymakers is real calls to action, calls to stop funding Israel, calls to um, end the violence on Gaza, to lift the blockade on Gaza, to end the occupation in the West Bank. These are really like concrete demands that Palestinian society are making. It's time now to listen to Palestinians and to act in any way that you can. And I will also say that the power of social media has proven to be extremely unmatched in these past few days. I was the first person, if you asked me a month ago, despite my Twitter following, which I know sounds ironic, but I don't actually claim to be an activist. So I've never used my Twitter as, as an example of activism. But if you told me a month ago that, hey, is posting about Palestine significant? I probably would have said no. I probably would have said no, like there's so many other things that you should be doing. But I've been proven wrong and I fully admit it, posting about Palestine, sharing Palestinian content, sharing and retweeting Palestinian voices has proven to be an extremely effective strategy. So effective in fact, that social media companies are bending over backwards, trying to figure out how to censor all of this newfound Palestinian content. And so I would say that couple with your BDS, couple with your political action, social media outreach and education. I have folks who I went to school with here in my small New Hampshire town who never cared about Palestine, who probably thought I was a nerd, who, who didn't really understand what was happening. And for the first time I see them sharing on their stories, you know, Palestinian calls for action and, and photos of what's happening in Palestine. And especially sharing the content of people who live there who are documenting the oppression that they're facing, whether it's violence from the Israeli military or police um, or, or really anything of that nature. I think it's imperative in this moment that we keep sharing that content. So do everything that you can. If you aren't able for whatever reason to be politically active, those retweets can make a difference. So don't be afraid to speak out online. I think the era of fear is over. Like what is Canary Mission or any of these blacklist websites? What are they going to do? Are they really going to add the millions of people around the world who have been posting lately? They can try. And even if they do, wear it as a badge of honor. But for right now, like we can't afford to let people who live in Palestine go unheard. So just really do everything you can to make sure that those voices are heard. Thank you, Naran. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank, thank you for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners and our viewers. Please go to our website, fmep.org, for more information, for many resources. Please subscribe to our podcast, subscribe to our list to know about our events, our daily news roundup, our regular original reports. Thank you so much for being a part of this work with us. Thank you for joining us today.